Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 412. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Patrick Jinks. Patrick is a certified leadership and strategy coach, specialized in helping not-for-profit organizations, boards and leaders. Patrick has had considerable experience in nonprofits, having served twice as CEO. He's also an author, having co-authored two books, one of which, Success Starts Today, was with Soup for the Soul creator Jack Canfield, as well as being sole author of the book Strategic Fail, Why Nonprofit Strategic Planning Fails and How to Fix It. In this discussion with Patrick, we look at how to be a better leader in a nonprofit. What are the key differences between leadership, strategic planning, and purpose between nonprofit and for-profit organizations? We also explore Patrick's key irreverent moments of truth. You'll find all the show notes on mentordial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review because you know that's how we survive. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Patrick Jinks, it's great to have you on the show. You are a certified leadership and strategy coach. You've also a professional photographer, and I'd love to talk about that in a moment. You spent 22 years of your professional life working in nonprofit areas and now you are helping the nonprofit world get more I want to say business like what is the way you'd like to describe yourself Patrick well you did pretty good there mentor thanks for having me on the show it's awesome to catch up again with you um I, I think the number one thing I make sure that I emphasize is that I am a coach not a consultant and that would be the the and we can talk about the differentiation or how I differentiate that anyway both roles are very valuable. Um, I and I can play a consultant if I need to, but my wheelhouse is in the world of coaching, and there's an entire model for that. There are actually several models, and uh, I find that coaching works really well. I just kind of figured it out at some point along the way that not only does it work with executives and teams and things, it works with nonprofit boards. Um, if I take a coaching approach with them rather than a consultant approach. And so rather than coming with answers, for example, and the recommendations and the, here's what you need to do. It's the coaching approach that comes with the series of the right questions that most organizations or even leaders just don't take the time to pause and ask themselves, or it's not rocket science questions. It's just having a coach gives you a space, a pause, a safe accountability partner and uh, a thought partner to um, to co-create solutions. So coach coach over consultant would be the the synthesis of all that. Mm. I feel like actually coaching in general is is what we all need all the time in life, in business and not for profits. How when you're doing coaching, what is the hardest part of coaching? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I couldn't agree more. Coaching is applicable formally and informally. And the, the, the coach that trained and certified me is Dr. Jim Smith. And he is the founder and president of Leadership Systems Incorporated. He is a longtime coach and trainer at the Center for Creative Leadership, which is sort of a mecca of coaching. And um, what, what he taught me was that, well, a lot of things. One being that coaching is a mindset. And that was really helpful for me as a leader in an organization. When I was a CEO of a nonprofit, for example, it wasn't that you had these formal coaching engagements. It's that every, uh, every situation has the potential to be a coaching situation. And you just have to be open to that. And, um, on the lookout for that. It's a mindset. So um, I agree with you on that. Uh, now I've forgotten your, your question. Uh, <laughs> the, the hardest part of it. The hardest when part is to stay quiet. So to ask the question and then shut up. And that is really hard because, you know, especially for someone like me who has a point of view and, you know, is pretty adamant about my own points of view, like we all are. And I have experience 
So I coach a lot of nonprofit executives and I've been a nonprofit executive for a couple of decades. I have lived it. I've, you know, learned a lot in the crucible of leadership. And so the temptation is to tell and give advice and here's my story and here's how I did it. And here's how you should do it. That that's the hardest part, ask the question. And then as my coach and trainer, uh, Dr. Smith would say, silence is golden. And if it takes the person a long time to come up with the answer, then that means the wheels are turning. Um, I've often described it as a leadership coach sort of does for a leader's mind what an what a physical trainer does for an athlete's body. And that is that it's not the physical trainer that's doing the work, uh, doing the reps, running the laps, lifting the weights, although they may do that on their own. Um, the trainer is about um, stretching and and growing and expanding the person that they're working with and so the the leadership coach sort of does the same thing it's about stretching leadership muscle and if you ask the thought-provoking and even challenging questions uh the mind starts working and it can get hard and and the best thing i can hear is when a coach e when a coach e says to me that's a tough question and then there's silence and i don't and i just sit there um, and that's the hardest part because I want to repeat the question or to help to give to prompt them or I want to maybe here's two or three potential uh, answers that you might be thinking about. No, you just have to let them do the work. As I'm listening to you, I'm now thinking of the coaching posture. Mm. And as the answer gets longer, the the thoughts in my head are, what's my next question going to be? <laughs> so, so as you that's listen to question, something, by the way, right? is how do you figure out which is the right question to do? Because you can go with the, the recent thought, which is the tail end of that, let's say a 10 minute speech. You know, you, I ask you a question and you tell me lots of stories, 10 minutes, you can tell me lots of things. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm gonna bounce off. And so the, there's a hard talent to be able to remember the most important, which is the most important question you're gonna ask now of the 10 minutes, are you going to pick something? So Patrick, at the very beginning, you said this, mm -hmm. tell me why, or mm -hmm. this and that. Mm -hmm. And remembering that, being fully present for the 10 minute spiel, and remembering that que that question seems so hard sometimes to answer, to, to find. It, you, I couldn't say it any better than that, Mentor. It is a matter of staying focused, staying attentive, staying present, and uh, you know, it's about coach the problem, not the person. So first thing, first thing you're dealing with is why am I coaching this individual? What are we working on? And that stays front and center. That's always at the center of the conversation. So if the coachee, for example, drifts off, then the coach has to kind of bring back. Okay, but what's the essence of what's really happening in this problem? Why is this happening? What have you done so far to approach this? Um, what ideas might you uh, think about that you until right now, when you're being asked to pause, you've just never thought of. So it's one, one is remember what the center point of the challenge is that you're, you're coaching. And the reason it's coached the problem, not the person you are coaching the person, but you have to be careful not to move into counseling mode. Um, there is a, not only is there a difference between a coach and a consultant, but there's a big difference between a coach and a counselor or a therapist. Um, so I'm, I'm not here to get down into the, you know, the deep cavities of your brain and your past and figure out psychologically why a dynamic, but it does come up. I mean, we are people, so we're leading a certain way. And so we will ask questions like, what are you most afraid of? You know, what's, what do you think is holding you back? And sometimes it does get into something personal and you kind of try to work that around. But um, yeah, I have to be very careful not to try to move into counselor mode. That requires a, 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 a very specific set of training and rigor and, and licensing and everything else. So coach the problem. And uh, sometimes the when you say what's the next right question, there's probably more than one right question you could ask it's so you have to free yourself to say oh i have to find the next question what if i miss it it's okay if you just ask a question as long as it is elevating thought and it's pushing and it's moving you towards something uh, you're going to be fine uh, here's another trick i learned from my coach uh, i will sometimes ask this question you and i are coaching and and we're in this you know challenging situation that you're dealing with and i say mentor if you were coaching someone like you right now, what would you be asking? 
And I literally, I give them the work and the job of figuring out what the next question is. And I'm going to tell you what, the, the number of times that, that this profound question comes up, I, I should probably, I would probably ask, you know, what, what are you afraid of? Or I should probably ask, you know, um, you know, what, whatever it is. And I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm really glad you said that. Cause I wasn't going there and that's better than where I was headed. And so I'll go, okay. So ask yourself that question. What comes to mind? And it's, it's a powerful mechanism. I do feel that profound questions are more interesting. And as soon as we start talking about profound questions, mm -hmm. There's always a risk of hitting therapy. Mm. My technique, Patrick, is um, just to reformulate what I've heard. Absolutely. And the funny thing about that is that when you reformulate, you're finding your words, you're demonstrating understanding, and it's crystallizing the thought in some regard for the person who said it. Mm -hmm. And if you just leave it as a reformulation, it inevitably sparks a need to continue talking. And we're, we're crystallizing, we're pushing down. That, that, that's, the, that's my, um, my favorite. But like, like you were, we're, we're talking about, it means shutting up, listening, listening deeply, and having the compass mentis to, to remember all the details that, that says, I'm so focused on you, Patrick. I'm not worried about my notifications. I'm not worried about the, the argument I had with my spouse in the morning. I'm not worried about the fact that I have another rendezvous with a CEO in about an hour. I'm, 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 I'm here with you. Mm. And the only way, of course, you can be really that present is when you're present with yourself. That's right. So I just, can I just want to get, I want to get, I want to move on to what you're doing because you're doing this in the nonprofit area. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose nonprofit? I mean, that's where you come from, but you presumably with your wealth of experience, you could have gone into any area. Why did you choose coaching in nonprofit? Uh, I get a lot of questions on that. And I, I get people, close friends and family who try to push me beyond the nonprofit sector into the corporate sector uh, uh, for, among other reasons, the fact that there's more money in it, you know? Duh, um, yeah. not profitable. <laughs> um, but, but a few things. One, there's money in the nonprofit sector. People don't realize that, um, you know, there's billions of dollars in the United States alone that, that uh, uh, come into nonprofits. There's hundreds of millions of dollars left over at the end of the year. If you were to add up all the financial statements of nonprofits, nonprofit doesn't mean you can't make a profit. It means you're not there to make a profit. That's not your purpose. You can, and in my opinion, should make a profit. You, we sh you're not, a, you can't be in business if you don't bring in at least as much as you're uh, spending and um, the ability to, to uh, do more is even better because then you're set up for sustainability and reserve and contingency. And you can re just like a business does, you can reinvest in more capital, more capacity so that you can produce more mission, accomplish more mission. So um, yeah, one of the reasons I've chosen the nonprofit sector and, and stuck with it is I, I guess it comes down to a few things. One is, yes, it is where I have the experience. So I do have a perspective of value to others because I've lived it. And I'm not, um, you know, I'm not looking in from the outside. Uh, even in coaching, yeah. it's, it's helpful to have the experience. You know how it rolls. And the, right. The yeah. Constraints yeah. and the challenges that come from the governance and the models of, of non-for-profit. Yeah. And where that's helpful, especially is when I'm coaching boards of nonprofits, they don't have to, I've been in organizations where the organization kind of had to train the consultant as they went on the nomenclature. Hmm. You don't have to, I don't have to be trained on that. I come in already understanding the language and the culture and the unique challenges and the sort of general structure. So that that's helpful. The second thing is um, it's, it's where I see need. You know, I was, uh, Priya Parker was on uh, Brene Brown's podcast a few months ago and she said, her mother asked her, what are you good at and where is their need for it? <laughs> and it's that simple. And so, um, I've found some things that I'm good at, some talents for coaching, training, speaking, whatever those things are, helping people connect to significant thought and okay, where is their need for it? Well, having spent the two decades in the sector, there's no shortage of need for the work that I do in the sector. 
And the third reason I would say is it gives me significance. I, I, it gives me a sense of purpose, which everybody wants, right? Connect their work to something purposeful and meaningful that you can look at and say, I know the difference I'm making. I can feel it and see it. And not that significance doesn't exist in the corporate sector. It's just not where I find significance. So connecting my passion to where there's need, perfect alignment for me. Makes total sense. And I mean, really, when we talk about purpose, there's something obviously you and I share as a, as a common topic, though we come at it from two different spaces. Essentially, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but a not-for-profit is purpose. Is it, to what extent is that the language within a not-for-profit? And how much is the conversation, because you've obviously worked with corporations as well, different when it comes to definition and implementation of purpose. Give us an like, a nuance, if you can, on how purpose is different in a not-for-profit versus a corporate. The long and short of it for me is that the purpose of a for-profit business is to make a profit. <laughs> it's for profit. That literally the, the structural name of the entity sort of sets the purpose. We all know that I mean, it's to make money. So yes, is there, how do I connect an idea to a need? There's still that just like there is in the nonprofit sector. There, uh, there are some companies who are more attuned to a social responsibility in addition to making a profit. So can I do good while I, while I make a profit? Um, you know, it, sometimes that's with the product that the product itself is adding value into the world. And so there's a purpose there. And sometimes it's, um, it doesn't matter what the widget is or what the service is that we're producing. We're using our profits or our position as a company to better the world over here, we're, we're, we're investing in youth development or we're investing in uh, the environment or whatever that might be. So it's not to say that the corporate world doesn't have purpose. It most certainly does. Maybe a significant difference among that for a nonprofit, purpose is required to achieve its tax-exempt status. The, the, the Internal Revenue Service here in the United States says, we'll give you a tax break if you can show us that in addition to structure and how you're governing and your checks and balances and accountability and ethics and all that, if you can show us how you're adding value from in a social way to the communities that you're serving, we give you a tax break. So nonprofits are more beholden to an accountability for that kind of purpose. Theoretically, <laughs> does the IRS go around checking to see, okay, uh, you know, give me your metrics. How did you improve education in your community? Well, they don't, um, but the nonprofit should. The nonprofits, I'm actually working on um, my doctoral dissertation, Mentor, as you and I have talked about, and it happens to be on how nonprofits measure their performance against their missions, their stated missions. And if you were to Google nonprofit mission statements, you'd see things like improve lives in our community. How do you measure that? Like by what standard, but what are your indicators for that? Or, you know, uh, um, you know, steward, steward our environment for a healthy living community. Oh man, that's so nebulous and vague and sounds wonderful, but how are you holding yourself accountable to that mission What's the measurability of that? And that's what I'm studying. And that goes straight to purpose. Your mission and vision really go straight to purpose. And it's just, there's a difference that to me, there's a different standard for that in the nonprofit sector than there is the for-profit sector. Measurability is something we, we as rational human beings like to have. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, but so many of the things that, are needed in leadership are, are, are soft skills. We know we can't measure empathy. We can try, but it's a hard thing to measure. It's fairly hard to measure ethics. It's certainly hard to measure love and, and purpose. So it, 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 it seems like a, 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 a rational need on top of a, an emotional concept or a softer concept. Mm. 
And I feel like so many times in business, we end up focused on the performance side of things, needing to put numbers to it. If you can't put a number to it, it's not worth it. And we, we tend to discard it, which I think is one of the underlying reasons why we can't make it part of our business gestalt because we can't measure it. We can't bonus therefore on it. It's just uh, a, a uh, subjective measurement that we have or a subjective idea that we have. When the non the non-profit world then, you have a stated purpose. How how does leadership change within the regard of a non-for-profit where purpose is stated? Hopefully you're measuring it somehow a little bit more than in the past, once they've read your dissertation. But how does leadership change? What are the what are the levers that are different when you're in a non-for-profit versus in a profit world? Um well, a couple of things, just going back to your original thought on what's measurable and what's not, um, you know, there are some th- empathy is actually measurable. Love is tougher. Um, and, there, you know, there's different forms of, of metrics for it. I, I agree that not everything we do can be measured and that not everything that can't be measured is of no value. However, um, the finding some indicators that what you're doing is having a some positive impact is important. Otherwise, we just operate on the assumptions. You know, we're doing good, therefore you should support us. Uh, you know, donors want more some sense of like make your case. You know, if I if I do this, what's the what's the value that's coming back to the community? In terms of leadership, I think there's a few things in the nonprofit sector. Many of the people that you're leading are not being paid to be led. And they're not being paid to do what it is you need them to do. It's um, the nonprofit sector, a synonym for the nonprofit sector is the voluntary sector or the independent sector or the third sector. You've heard it by a number of different names. It's all the same thing. But you're dealing with with volunteers and you're leading people who aren't being paid or who don't have a financial vested interest in in the organization. They're they're more... um, they're there. They are there for purpose and meaning. And how, how do you connect that meaning? So it's where the influence of leadership rather than the position and power of leadership really comes into play. The second thing I would say is that leading in the nonprofit sector, this, I don't know how different this is, but I, I think it's different in that there's sort of a macro version of collective leadership. Now, in, inside an organization, there's tons of, of studies and academics and theory and practice about how a CEO of a corporation is really good at distributed leadership and shared leadership and collective leadership and uh, forming a team that all you know have a sense of autonomy and power to lead. In the nonprofit sector, you've got to connect with people outside your organization in leadership. If I'm addressing housing and homelessness in my community, I, I'm not going to do that by myself. My shelter or my, I work a lot with Habitat for Humanity, for example, and, you know, they, they build houses uh, for, for pe- uh, people on just sort of on the margin who would not be able to own or, or pay a mortgage on a, on a big home, but, but they put sweat equity in and they have a home and it helps address homelessness. But that doesn't end homelessness and that doesn't solve the housing crisis in a community. You've got to work with your governments on policy. You've got to work with neighborhood revitalization people. You've got to work with economic development people. You've got to work with other social service organizations that are building a support system around the new resident and owner of the home. So you have to have this ability to lead collectively. And again, with more people who aren't paid by you to do what you need them to do. Um, and then the third thing, third difference I would say uh, in the nonprofit sector, and it's just something I have lamented for years and continue to lament, and that is the excruciatingly slow speed at which the sector moves on its mission. And a lot of that ha- just has to do with the, the, the culture and the way it's set up and the system of a nonprofit, having boards and committees, and you got to have all the buy-in of a community before you can pull some major lever. And so speed is is an issue. And then we've already talked about purpose. So I do think there are some nuanced challenge. Leadership is leadership, but I do think there are some nuanced challenges in the nonprofit world. When I listen to you, Patrick, the, of the four, the third one is a no-go as far as corporate business is concerned, something to aspire to. But the first two 
in particular feel really relevant in a corporate world? Because in the end of the day, once you have paid the, the, the strict minimum, if you will, money is not the motivator. And, and so you, you shouldn't be using the, the lever, the whip of a big bonus as the motivator. Right. So that feels like if you could just be a little bit more like that in corporate world, that might be interesting. And then this idea of collective leadership, that this speaks to all the stakeholders that make your business come alive. They don't necessarily report into you, but you have distributors, you might have salespeople, you might have influencers, you might have lobbyists all these other participants in allowing your company in that industry to work are outside and your ability to influence them is also relevant. Mm -hmm. It feels like there could be some learning that goes that side from the not-for-profit because otherwise we're, we, we end up with this ego-headed approach to leadership, which is, I'm going to tell you the way it is. I'm going to you know whip. And, and yet we should be more open to other you know, our bigger, bigger network. Well, the word you use the word, which is influence, which, which I subscribe to John Maxwell's theory on that, which is influence and leadership are synonymous terms. Hmm. Leadership is influence. It's not position. It's not authority. Um, it is power in a way, but it's the power to influence. It's just that the basis of power, where that power comes from, makes a difference. If where my power comes from is my business card says I'm the president, so you do it, or you do what I I sign your check. So there's a, that's a base of power. Um, and that's what I mean by people who aren't being paid. Not that money is the motivator, but that I have a leverage over you. I can just let you go if you're not performing. Um, and volunteers, you can let volunteers go too. We won't get into that, but that's, it's just different when you're trying to influence someone from a different source of power, referent power, reward power, relationship power, personhood power. And, um, and that's all through the corporate sector as well as any, any other sector. Le that's where leadership is leadership, no matter what sector it is. But I think you're right. Both, both sectors, all sectors can learn from each other, good and bad um, for, for what, you know, what the, um, what the tenets of leadership that really work well in one sector, why, why wouldn't they work in another, for example? So in your experience then, maybe you have uh, an example or uh, a, a, a case where you've seen how to motivate people without the power of reward, this voluntary market. What are, what are some examples that you might've seen uh, in, that are most effective in driving the motivation of unpaid workers so if I'm in a corporation, typically that's what people are listening to this podcast are. What are the takeaways that I could do that work? What are the levers that I can use? Because I can't pay them anymore, darn it. I don't have enough money. I'm not profitable enough. I've got to drive their motivation alternatively. What are some of the keys in your mind? Well, I can I can answer this from an academic standpoint because I've studied it quite a bit, and I can and I can also say that I have lived experiences that affirm what the academics say about it, and what the and by academics I mean there's research that answers your question specifically, and it's um it's it's really three things that you're connecting people to, and you're so right when people when you say there's a minimum amount you have to pay people, and then beyond that, money's not the motivator. Uh, a book, Drive, by Daniel Pink, is one of the best books on this topic, by the way. It, he takes self-determination theory and makes it understandable for the layperson. And and it's really three things that, that, that Pink touches on that are the three components of self-determination theory. Number one, can I give people, to what degree can I, can I help people achieve a sense of autonomy? And what that means is not, I, I don't answer to anybody. What it means is I have control over how I do my job. So I have some sense of decision-making ability um, and I, I get to sort of determine and shape and frame how I do my job. If you want me to do the job, let me, give me a sense of autonomy in terms of how I do it. Let the me be second, an adult. Let me be an adult. And, and, and by the way, you know, one of the exercises or the, the examples we give when we're doing like employee engagement training is what about a call center? We have someone maybe even making minimum wage 
on a headset with a script at a computer taking automated calls and and walking through this deal and they and they have to clock in at eight o'clock and they have to clock out for lunch at noon and clock back in at one and clock back out at five o'clock and this is your cubicle this is how much space you have there's a there's a dress code so we wear a corporate uniform here like how much autonomy can we take from somebody right there's no autonomy so how do you create how do you elevate a sense of autonomy among call center agents well one way might be Ask them questions about how we can improve the center. Just asking someone their opinion and their, you know, like help, help me understand something from your seat. You're actually extending a degree of autonomy for them. You're giving them some sense of decision-making, even if it's just they're asking for my voice, um, you know, letting them decorate their cubicles, however they want, letting, giving them flex schedules and letting them figure out what the best thing. Is. So how can you create that sense of autonomy? The second component of this is competence or what Daniel, what Daniel Pink calls it, um, I think mastery, but competence, people are engaged and feel good when they are good at what they do and they know they're good at what they do. And they know, it, especially if they're like, I'm the best at people. People in this organization rely on me for this because I do it better than anybody else. There's this huge sense of engagement that comes with that. So how does a leader increase competence? That's where leadership development comes in. It's where training and development comes in. Um, understanding what, um, what will grow this individual's sense of competence uh, is, is part of the job of a leader. And the third thing is relatedness or what Daniel Pink calls purpose. And I like both terms, but in the relatedness construct, in the, in the academics of self-determination theory, it's people are engaged when they feel a sense of identity or belonging with two things, the mission slash organization and the leader slash leaders. If I, can, if I feel a sense of I'm, I belong here, I, I identify with this leader, um, I identify with this mission. I can see how what I do connects to a bigger purpose. Um, I feel related to it. So if I'm putting, you know, nuts on bolts, that's a tedious job all day long. That's my job, putting nuts on bolts. Well, how does a leader help that individual understand that putting that nut on that bolt connects to the greater purpose of what's going on? What's the product they're building and what are they solving for the people that buy that product? And how does this nut on this bolt change the game? Um, so autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Uh, the, and you, I think you and I have talked about this before when you came on my show, is that I've, I've tried to differentiate, you know, people say that leaders motivate people. I challenge that by saying, I do think leaders inspire people, but, and maybe they do motivate people, but I think the, the more artful role of leadership is to connect people's existing motivation with purpose. In other words, a leader needs to understand their people enough to know what is it that drives them and how can I make the connection between that and what needs to be done? Uh, General Dwight Eisenhower's definition of leadership. Getting people, the, the art of getting people to do things you want done because they want to do it. <laughs> There's some connection to that, that motivation. So we think of motivation as rah, rah, and I'm going to be really persuasive and I'm going to give this speech that's going to inspire everybody. And now you're going to all perform. So there's value in that. But the real, the real thing is, can I connect the individual's motivation to the purpose? Love it. So your your book, uh, Strategic Fail, you talk a lot about strategy and it's a wonderful topic. It's it's one of those topics where I feel a lot of people talk about it, but very few people actually do it properly. For, for you, you talk about strategic planning. You've been quoted numerously in big press about your approach to strategic planning. Give us a little insight on what needs to happen to make strategic planning come around. How long is this interview? <laughs> it was, I'll say a few key things. Uh, one, maybe the most important thing to, to share is that my philosophy is that strategy is not an event. 
And in the nonprofit, I don't know about the corporate sector. I haven't done a lot of strategic planning in the corporate sector. I've been involved in a couple of, of those projects, but in the nonprofit sector, I can speak for uh, the strategic planning process conventionally, historically, traditionally, and um, in, in just the model that's prevalent is once every three to five years, we bring the board together for a half a day, hmm. a full four hour, maybe even a full day. And the really aggressive nonprofits will even do an overnight retreat. And at this retreat, whether it's four hours or a day and a half, we're going to build our strategic plan. And we're going to walk away with a strategic plan. And that's the event. And the board does it all right there on the spot. And I challenge that notion for so many different reasons we don't have time for on this episode. But one is, this is a group of volunteers who do not spend their waking hours thinking about and working on strategy for your organization. They're running the bank or the law firm or the manufacturing company or whatever their role is in their community. That's what they're paid to get up and think about and work on. And that's their, that's their world. So you're going to take a board that spends, by the way, an average of six hours a year with you together as a meeting. And you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to lay the future viability, sustainability, and thriving of your organization. You're going to put your bet on that eight hours with those individuals. It's, it's not fair. It's not fair to the organization. It's not fair to the board. And it's a big deal to set strategy. So we define it as a continuum. First of all, it doesn't start with strategic planning. It starts with strategic direction. What is it? Like, let's get some strategic intent first before we figure out planning. Everybody jumps into, okay, let's do a SWOT and let's create some strategies. What do we want to do next? Let's go, hold on. Where are we going? Uh, you know, what are the, what are the big strategic bets or intentions in our heads? Do, are we even thinking the same thing before we figure out how to get there? We really have to um, center on that. And then the other thing is it also doesn't end at strategic planning. You now have strategy by definition is at a strategic level. Well, at some point you got to get it on the ground and figure out, okay, so what's the work? What, what is the tangible, what do I go do right now? And what is somebody else going and doing? And how is what we're doing coming together to drive this strategy? Um, and then it's about leadership. So we, we tie onto our coaching model, um, four phases of strategic planning, strategic direction setting is number one, strategic planning is the second level operational planning, which is getting to that tactical level is the third. And then leadership coaching is actually a fourth thing that we've added on to our continuum because a, a strategic plan without leadership is just a document. It's just, you know, it's nothing. So um, that, that would be one thing I, you'll see in the book. Um, I try to simplify the complex. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate strategic planning. Um, and, and yes, it's involved, it's comprehensive, it's important, it's significant, but how can we simplify the model so that everyone gets a grasp of and goes, ah, okay, I get this now. I see how these are, the these are the things that we're betting on will lead us to our mission. Um, so that, those, are some of the, those are some of the key tenets I think I share in the book. There's a lot, the book is actually 10 reasons why nonprofit strategic planning goes bad and we don't have time for all those, but there's a lot of them, you know, yeah. they, I plan and then I don't budget for it or um, I plan. And then next year when we have a new board chair, they want a new plan because it's the, what I call the, it's my year syndrome and I'm going to be the greatest board chair ever. So I don't like John's plan from last year. It really should have been this. So we're going to redo our strategic plan every year. You know, there's lots of reasons it happens, but um, it's an important function. It's a critical function of your organization. So yeah, my, my takeaway from that, from a business standpoint, is actually your fourth point to have uh, continuing coaching, because really that's perhaps the thing that I feel is most missing in the corporate world. And, and the one thing I would really encourage anyone who's listening to look at in implementing, because strategic planning as a journey, as a process is kind of more a language we're used to in corporate, albeit done poorly and so on, where strategy isn't really. I want to finish on one last area, Patrick. Um, and uh, I want to use the word irreverence 
uh, because it's, it'd be nice to end with some irreverent moments of truth. Can you tell me what prompted you to write this way? And more specifically, give me an example of the most irreverent moment of truth. I don't know about the most irreverent moment of truth. And this was just really a, a little mechanism um, that I decided to use in the book to where I felt like this is a place, hey, pay attention to this one. If you're skimming this book, stop right here and really pay attention to this one because this might, you might relate to this. Yeah, and it, it, can that, I just interrupt a second? It's, it's yeah. A lot of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you, huh. when you tell strategy is important. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And, right. and what I felt was that you were, whoop, let's just wait on the yeah, yeah, yeah thing a second here. Let's, let's just check that one a second. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's why it works. It's kind of like a you know, stand-up comedy. The, the best stand-up comedy is based in truth. And, and it's why irreverent comedy is so funny because people might say, well, that's irreverent, but at the same time, they're going, it's so true. Like, <laughs> that, like, you know, and that's why it's funny because it's true. And that's sort of the, the, um, the little mechanism I, I try to do is actually a little symbol so that literally it's visible on a page. It's a, it's a, you know, white text in a black box that says, I, I am T irreverent moment of truth, pay attention to this. And really, it's just it's a use of kind of sarcasm and maybe exaggerating a little bit in a way that kind of makes them chuckle and then go, oh, that's me. That is so me. So, for example, um, an irreverent moment of truth is how many nonprofits recruit their board members. And it goes something like this. You know, uh, the annual meeting is coming up in three weeks and we have three empty spots on our board that we still haven't filled because we, we're not real strategic about how we fill our board. We just, we got to have the seats and we got we need to meet the criteria in our bylaws and, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's the annual meeting is here and we still have three open positions. So we get on the phone real quick and they start calling people and they say, mentor, um, how you doing, by the way? Uh, great, great. Uh, wonderful. Well, listen, the reason I'm calling is um, our board met and we would love for you to come on our board of the Acme nonprofit organization. And you may not know a whole lot about us, but here's what we do. And, and you've probably heard us. I, I think you, you know some of our board members. We would love for you to come on the board because you're just such an amazing presence. You're a speaker and an author and, and you just have so many networks and we just think you'd be great on our board. And uh, maybe, maybe you start asking some questions like, well, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. What's this, what does this involve and why me and all these things? Well, it doesn't look, it, it's, it's not a big ask. We don't, we want to be sensitive to your time. Um, we, we meet six times a year. If you attended even half of those, you know, that would be a value to us. You don't have to attend them all. You can serve on a committee, but you don't have to. In other words, we sit there and we tell them all the things they won't have to do, how easy this job is. What a big mistake. What a huge mistake to miss an opportunity to say, you know, here's what we need. We are an engaged board. You're going to be, you're going to be contributing. This is what, because I don't want people on my board who the expectation is I don't have to do much because then I complain about how disengaged my board is. And I wonder, I wonder why they're not engaged. Well, because you told them when they came on, they didn't have to be. That's an irreverent moment of truth. Nobody likes to really admit that their boards are like that, but I've done this in workshop with a couple hundred people in the room that, and I look, I see this around the room, like, oh, oh my gosh, like, ouch, that hurt. Like those are irreverent moments of truth. Let's get real about what we're really doing here and how it's hurting you. So that's kind of, it's, you know, I try, I, and I'm, I caveat it, you know, I say, don't, don't get offended. I'm not, I'm not trying to crush your toes here, but I do want to kind of, I want you to feel this and pay attention to it because here's the implication of it. Love it. Well, um, I, I think there's a scoop. Maybe you're going to become a stand-up comedian after you write your dissertation. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> just going to stand up and be irreverent and politically incorrect and everything else I can be and just see if I can make some money that way. No, well, I can <laughs> I had a really interesting conversation with a, a friend uh, in California called Ryan Berman. And, and part of the challenge we have in, in organizations in general is speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. It takes courage to say to the CEO, the product sucks. Because that's not what he or she is planning to hear. 
And on the yeah. board, if the board is the, you know, in, in certain organizations, the, the board has total power. And do you want to say all the truth to them? Because that might get me fired. And, and it takes, so irreverence is an interesting way to get the truth to come across. Ultimately, the issue is our ability to be truthful because if we're if we're always cloaking everything in some kind of nice to hear niceties, well, this this is certainly a way to slow down the decision making process, get rid of agility, and go to a dead end, not profitable, forget not for profit approach. Um, another word you could use in place of irreverent is humorous. You know, cause the the idea here is irreverent, not meaning disrespectful. But uh, humor opens people's minds to hear the truth a little bit. You know, so it just kind of, it takes off the edge. It's not as in your face, I'm accusing you. It's let's talk generally about, oh, wow, you know, this is what we do. And then we expect this and people say, yeah, that's true. So to me, it's just any way that you can open up people's minds to hear the truth. There's a way to deliver truth and a way not to deliver truth. And uh, so I don't have it down, but this was just a mechanism I, I find useful in my workshops as well as in my writing. Certainly the way matters. Patrick, thank you for coming on the show. Tell thank us you. how, tell anyone can get in touch with you, especially, of course, if they're interested in not-for-profit work, but get your book, follow up what you write, understand more about your journey. Well, thank you, Mentor, first of all, for uh creating this space and this conversation. I've had several with you now and I've, I really enjoy them. So I, I hope we stay connected. Uh, I just, the website is probably the center point. Every, everything else is there. So if, uh, if they go to jinxperspective.com and that's J I N K S it's not the J I N X like I'm bad luck. It's J I N K S perspective.com and uh, you know, see more. And I, you know, my, my goal for the site is to try to, deliver content and value, not necessarily just to sell, but if you are particularly a nonprofit organization that could use maybe a different approach to how you um, align leadership with strategy and board engagement and employee engagement and those kinds of things, and you think I might be able to be of some help, reach out and be great. Well, I certainly know a number of people in the not-for-profits that I'm going to be sending this to, so thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your passion for uh, getting purpose and making it uh, sustainable, not profitable. Thanks again, Patrick. Thanks again, Mentor, for the platform. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why i'm a convinced man practicing my lines i'm a convinced man here in these confines a convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man, me to the test. I'm a convinced man, I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man, in the arms of a woman. welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.